0: Hello everyone, this is Aerie. You know me as Airy in the Air. I'm here in Bend, Oregon, in my house, recording yet another intro for the Airy in the Air podcast, of which I am so excited that you are here. Today I have a conversation with my new friend. Her name is Jill Nephew. Jill is a former competition paraglide pilot, and now she is working on this project called Inquire, Inquire.io. I'll put the link in the description below. Basically, she is uh working to help people unlock the power of inquiry, which is so closely aligned to what I'm doing with my philosophical coaching practice. Um, and if you have existential knots that you need help untying, would love to help you. Airyintheair.com. There's a coaching page on which there is a link that you can schedule a free coaching call, uh, which is really exciting. And as always, if you like this show and you want to support it, please consider supporting on Patreon for as little as $5 a month. That goes just so far in making this whole thing go. I basically get $350 a month from my listeners currently, and I would love that to be... Man, honestly, the $350 is helpful, but uh, it doesn't go that far. So... You know how it goes i'm sure 350 bucks a month doesn't go that far in your account either but it is very helpful so i appreciate everyone who um is giving on patreon and appreciate you considering becoming one of those people so without further ado here's a little music and my conversation on various topics with jill nephew enjoy Hi, Jill. Welcome. Thanks for being here.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Okay, so we're both paraglide pilots and have done a lot of paragliding cross-country and competitions and the metaphysical and philosophical implications of that sport are something that my listener is uh, somewhat familiar with. As we were talking before we started recording, we kind of got to this place of um, how our past experiences create a lens for us to see the world. And I want to just start my rant here, and we can use it as a jumping off point. Sounds good. Okay. So basically, when you learn to paraglide, there is a certain culture that you learn in that is regional to the place that you learn it's regional to the geography itself this is something that i'll use woodrat oregon Uh, woodrat mountain is one of the older and more embedded free-flying sites in all of america and certainly in oregon and when i started flying midday there when the air was very active and could take me up real high. The stories that I heard were pretty doom and gloom. And there were things like, don't ever fly over that mountain because Kevin took a collapse and threw his reserve there. Right. And it's interesting to note that there is a certain, concern that instructors have for their students that lead them to tell stories that are anecdotal at best and uh, based somewhat in fear but my point is that it puts a lens on the student and the my point here is that that lens is actually quite difficult to transcend yeah if you're lucky you'll find yourself, after you graduate from paragliding school you'll you'll be lucky to find a group of people that their culture and their ethos matches that of i dare say your soul um my soul it seems if i'm being observant was born into a body and it has expressed its true nature by jumping off of flipping going fast, um, doing tricks, showing off, um, increased risk, increased complexity of stunt increased, you know, more and more spectacular all the time. Mm -hmm. And luckily I found a group of men here in central Oregon who paraglided with, with some panache with some pizzazz with, you know, they did acrobatics and they did them close to the ground. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I I found myself welcomed. I found myself welcomed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is to set up essentially what we know to be true, which is that our conditioning is very hard to shake and from my point of view, and I look at the world as carefully as I can, I sense that one of the deepest tragedies we have is our certainty. It's the things that we're sure of that lock us into a certain perspective. I guess I would like to hear your reflections on this in general, but I think our conversation can be useful in Inquiring about inquiry, what it is about asking ourselves, or let me start again, what it is about our certainty that can lock us in place and what it might take to get us out of that space and into one that opens to the broader possibilities in our life, in our world, that is relationally uh That is, societally, all these things, I think that, you know, as Jordan Greenhall predicts, we're using less than 10% of our collective capacity, and we're stuck in something, and our ability to shake out of it and see a broader perspective might be the first step.
1: Yeah. There's a lot of places to go with this invitation um, that we're coming up as you're sharing all that. I echo all of your sentiments um maybe this one will be interesting uh i had a deployment that i actually talked about in another podcast that particular deployment where um there's kind of this uh, as i understand it kind of a, a gradation of how how thoroughly convinced are you going to die like if you're if you're just like 99.999 convinced you're going to die you kind of come out of that it, it gets quite um a different experience than like maybe I'll die. Like, I had a lot of near deaths because I'm like you, like, I pushed the envelope back in the day, and I was always kind of, you know, that was just the envelope I, I wanted to play in. Um, and that one in particular, though, was the one that really I thought my life did flash for my eyes. I thought, there's no way you're getting out of this. Like, and then I had to shift all my thinking to get out of it. But <clears throat> after that happened, um, I ended up uh, talking to uh, a couple other high profile uh, world champion paraglider pilots. Cause I was training for wanting to get better and better. And they shared with me that something had happened to them like that as well in their history, their older in their career. And both of them shared independently. It took them like 10 years to really feel a recovery from that. And I actually had that experience. It's actually 13 years for me, but I wasn't flying that often, um, where literally something broke up, but like, it was like the clouds parted. Um, I was at the same site I was, I, uh, deployed at, uh, and I, it just was like a spontaneous moment, I, almost like a, maybe even an enlightenment thing you can imagine where we're driving, you know, how people have described enlightenment, like we're just an ordinary day, we're driving to lunch. And all of a sudden, I just felt it. I felt the shift. And the first thing I did was I cried for my friends that had died in the sport because I my love for the sport came rushing back in a way I hadn't felt since before the deployment. That like, I could feel that love is what was missing. It all and when just rushed you say, back in.
0: When you say deployment, yeah. you mean you threw your reserve parachute, you lost control of your glider and... You were yeah, out of control I control and it. had to res- throw your reserve parachute.
1: Yeah, I probably should fill that in for people. So we we often get into situations where it's natural for our glider to we kind of just operate with this this glider that can collapse and come back and like kind of take all these configurations. And we, you get comfortable with the idea that you just have to get your glider back. And if you fail to do that before the ground comes up, you go to your backup glider, your reserve parachute. Um, in this particular situation um I was under a lot of G's. I don't know how many, but so many that I couldn't lift my head or my hands. Like I, I was a, I was just frozen with the weight, like I couldn't move. And so I thought I was definitely going to die because I couldn't move. Um and I ended up I told this story a little different on the podcast, but I because I didn't justify it in that, that was a different context. But I actually had to yell at the top of my lungs, no, I'm not dying for an effing sport. Um to kind of get I think the adrenaline going to where I could lift my hand enough to to deploy. But I was also just so shocked of, of being under so many G's so I was just locked in a spiral and a uh, overloaded on a glider the glider was was too small for me I already knew that because back then we were trying that out as an advantage so and and this thing just locked in hard um, and I twisted my risers and it was just like there's where your body's gonna land it's like your seconds away you know you're just careening towards the crash point um anyway I deployed and literally the shoot filled up as I was about to really smack in and acted like a giant drug shoot. And then the reserve handle was just sitting right there. Like I deployed probably 50 feet from impact. It was mm-hmm. like, poof. and just like, and I thought it was so close that I just thought I was in a dream. I thought that couldn't have just happened. Like you're actually a bloody pulp and this is your mind's ho- fully dissociated, like pre-death getting, you know, to imagine the other outcome. Cause it was like really, it was also really weird. I am kind to of, on the same way, but it's a fun story it happened to be springtime and we're on this mountainside and where I landed was like this perfectly ma- manicured lawn with like, like as a lawn flat with like this rock to sit on that looked like from a fairy tale. And I'm like, why is there like this lawn on the side of the mountain? It turns out it was an old abandoned, um, uh, railroad track just coincidentally, that left this flat area that just had the spring grass. But it was like, why am I in this like lawn next to this rugged mountain? I just like, it didn't add up in California. So I was just this coincidence also, I think that added to like the, what just happened? Um, anyway, it's the, that when the, when 13 years later I'm driving to launch, I mean, I was flying this whole time, but what had happened is all of a sudden the love rush back, came rushing back in to me. And the first thing I did was cried for my friends that had died in that interim, because I knew they'd never had this love again. Like I cried for the mourning of them not having such an immense love for the sport. And I think that also, I know you talk about this a lot, but it really, I had struggled so much with my risk reward decisions. Like I really wanted to not love the sport. I wanted to like get away with my life. I wanted to love the sport and also have my life. I didn't want to be someone who's going to die in the sport. And I, I was always testing, like, did you have enough? Can you just like, be like, I'm one of the winners. I didn't break my back. I didn't die. You know? Um, I got all the great memories. Oh my God, I can't believe I pulled that stuff off. And now I've got all the memories and can I tap out now? And when all those emotions came back, I was like, oh my God, like I, you know, I was, I was, I, I was, and maybe am living for this sport in a bigger way than I'm recognizing, you know, which maybe I know it's a big topic, but so that, that all came rushing back in and, and the difference flying that day, was which i think is getting back to your point i was aware of this film where my attention was always about the fear to where that was almost like a constant cloud layer like it was varying degrees of gray but it was all under cloud and when the dam broke and i got back to the love it's almost like i could see the crack of the sky between some of the clouds and that's all i needed because i was navigating by the sky so like um and then what happened that day was um I end up doing a route. It's not a it's not a spectacular route, but I ended up opening up a route and no one had flown before uh, because no one had kind of the courage to this <laughs> complete what's called tired country, where you just it you just you can't it strikes you out. It's almost like an overhang at thousands of feet. Like the idea of how horrible it'd be to like go down in this crossing was just just people couldn't handle it emotionally. But I found this like new tool where I was like, okay, I, it's a tiny way through, but I see. With complete confidence, that there is a way through, and I'm going to put my full attention on that. And I just I see it like that's the way. And if I have to, there's these other ways out, and I'm going to ignore the 99% hell around that. I see the one line through, and just commit and execute because I can see it. Where before it felt like the fear would just blot that out. I don't know if that makes sense, but
0: so that, what I'm hearing yeah. is that there was some kind of you had a we'll call it a near death experience that years later was almost a experience of grief where you had grieved the loss of your friends or the loss of their passion for the sport that they were no longer available to feel this. Yeah. This uh, metaphysical draw towards the sport. And through that experience, you unlocked a new depth of capacity in yourself in the same sport.
1: Yeah. And I think that's what the other people were speaking to that, like that they came back stronger after it. You know, and I could see that that was because, uh, you know, it was like I found a new muscle that even if the whole sky is black, like I can, I had dealt with the whole sky being black. So as soon as like there's a crack of light, like I had some new muscle where I could just say, I'm just putting mm-hmm. my full attention on the way through uh, because I, I don't know, it's like I trained this strength to um, deal with like looking, you know, handling that much dark. <laughs> Cause I was just seeing it everywhere. I'm not sure if that makes any sense, but like it was, it totally felt like, ah, I I've, I've been trying so hard. Maybe it's another way to think, but the adversity of the deployment <clears throat> had me muscling against trying to see the positive for so long. Like, come on, like, you know, come on find it. That was like a push up of attention to try to push away to find the light. So once I finally could see it, I was like, I had all these muscles. I'm like, Oh, lock on. Uh-huh. Like I'm, I'm super strong already. Cause I've been trying to push against this dark thing for so long. That once there's even like the clearest light path, like my attention's strong and and I can count on it to like stay on that line.
0: Yeah, this is uh, recently I was in conversation with John Verveke and I told him how a uh, really painful breakup I had had that put me into a state that I would refer to as depression as I came out of that, I seemed to have unlocked my capacity to fly cross country further and better and faster than I ever had. And he called that a reciprocal opening that my ability to paraglide helped me move through the grief and the grief, that deep human emotion of grief and having not just, not just having felt it, but having moved through it. was reassuring for me that I could get through other, harder, more painful bullshit. Right. And that seemed to make an opening in my flying that allowed me to push a little further to, as you mentioned, tiger country, the term we use for places you really don't want to fucking land. Um, (laughs) Yeah. my yeah. willingness to fly over tiger country my assumption that even if i got cold or tired or hungry or thirsty that i would be okay that i could right. carry my backpack for a long ways that all of these you know all the different layers of cognitive insurance i put on myself um were reasonable and i just had a bit more capacity to as you say instead of focusing on the dark clouds to lock on to the blue piece of sky that you see and run with it like hell.
1: And, and knowing that if you can't lock to it, it won't work. Like, I think that's, a, it has a feedback of additional confidence that like, if you're sitting there worrying about the hike out that, you know, that if you're, if any part of your mind, it's in your cognitive workspace, the negative stuff with the positive, it's pulling on you. It, is- it takes your attention away. So I think there is something like the, that you have to like, it to me, it almost feels like, you know, really good executive. And I think there is some mapping I can talk about in a minute onto like the entrepreneurship, but really good executive thing of like, I've got that handled. Now back to the task on hand. Like, okay, I'll deal with that. If that happens, but I don't need to keep it in here anymore. Out. So it's like almost like a, a quite conscious, what are you going to put in your mind and what are you going to put out of your mind muscle? Yeah. yeah. Um, and I was going to say like that this came up in the interview at the STOA where I was talking about paragliding. <clears throat> Where Peter asked about that reciprocal mapping he said mapping but instead of opening sorry I didn't clear my throat and I I had said well that I I don't see it maybe you have this tube that I have so many lessons from paragliding um that I I don't I don't know I, I don't I said no I said no I don't think you automatically get it I don't know though I've only been me. But I, said, so what I did say is I do know if I actively think about, ah, how does this feeling remind me of something in paragliding? And I consciously bring to mind similar things in paragliding. That's been like a huge compass for my entrepreneurship, like huge. And the biggest, the biggest thing I think there's no way I could have done without paragliding is that we are doing a really hard project. I knew this was a hard project. When I first quit my job to work on Inquire, um, I was uh, interviewed by uh, uh, some tech people and I was already three, three years in actually. And they said, what's your, what's your source, your resilience. I'm like, this has to be done. Like someone has to work on this. I just know it. And I said, I only give myself a 15% chance of success. Best case. Like I don't understand the business model. I don't. there's so many things against me here, um, but I'm going to do it anyway. And I, and I did hang in there for a long time. And then I started getting a lot of hassle, perfect parallel. People saying, why haven't you launched yet? Why haven't you launched yet? Like, why haven't you done this big public launch? And to me, in paragliding, there's such a clear, difference difference between when you're on launch and when you launch like I always train people wait till you find your yes like there's something where you can feel it when you say I I want this I I'm marrying this guy like I'm going to be intimate with this guy." I kind of it's invisible I'm sitting on launch like I don't know I don't know and then like I'm I'm courting you maybe like I'm just all all this doubt and then finally you're you just this hunger develops and you're like then nothing can stop you like I want I still want to be part of this like I want to just go do this And I knew that feeling I was waiting for in my startup. I was waiting for that. And I could feel how close I was to it by analogy, all the felt sense on launch and like what was in the way. It was like perfect mapping. What normally be like an hour or two, maybe on launch, maybe where you're like watching the day develop and seeing what it's going to be about, seeing if you want to play and like really get a sense of what's going on out there. That had stretched out over years. Uh, But but it was the same feeling I could stay with saying, I know what this feeling is. And I know it's me saying, I don't know enough yet about what it's going to be like to play in the market because once I'm out there, I know I'm going to be reacting, reacting, reacting. You know, like it's like i don't get this the luxury of pulling back and like studying. And I—I I don't understand it yet. And I will know when I understand it. Trusting that.
0: Yeah, those are nice lessons. Uh, you know, the first thing that you mentioned there was what we refer to as object fixation. If you fixate on the obstacle, the hazard, you're Certainly headed towards it, right? Like even just visually, as humans, we put our eyes where we try to go, and when we're going somewhere, we our eyes are on the path ahead. So if we fixate on the obstacle, the danger, the hazard, the fear, we, you know, in New Age terms, we manifest that. We bring that in.
1: Right, Um, right. We sink ourselves into the ground. Is how we refer to it. Like, which just does sound metaphysical, right? That you. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And the other thing is, you know, how I, how I heard that was essentially that there's a sensitivity that you've developed to your own feeling around readiness and willingness. Mm -hmm. And that's so incredibly important. Um, You know, I've been doing a lot of base jumping lately and that feeling on the edge of the cliff where I go from standing there, like feeling the air with my whiskers, trying to determine if the conditions are acceptable to jump to when my body says yes, my yeah. intellect says it's acceptable, and my soul says, fuck yeah, let's jump off this cliff. Like it's yeah. just, you know, the typical three, two, one, Sia is like the... You know, everyone thinks that that's what everyone, every base jumper says. And so many of them say it. And I just find myself so frequently, like once that, once all of those, that tripartite thing is aligned, like I don't have time to do any kind of countdown. I'm just like off of the cliff.
1: Right. (laughs) Right.
0: So I, yeah, I think the, the lessons from paragliding and from action sports and even more broadly movement it's crazy to me that we don't have you know that sports in America are the vast majority is spectator right like i'm yeah. such a small minority of people who has risked their lives becoming masterful in the physical domain and that right, right. is i think telling you know that yeah you know because i think that you know the the cognitive and spiritual benefits of martial arts in the Mm -hmm. last 15 years has become really apparent again, Mm -hmm. you know, um, you know, Joe Rogan is a huge proponent for jujitsu. And I think that, you know, Jockey Sanderson, there's like this huge, uh, kind of like wave of, of really disciplined and philosophically sensitive, um, perspective that comes from martial arts. And, yeah. um, and I use martial arts as just a radical broadening from my particular sect of martial arts, which is life-threatening parachute, air sports, free skiing, highlining, all these things that are, right? you know, people look at it <laughs> for one second. They think, Oh, like dying is a very real possibility in that. That sounds terrifying. Yeah. And, um, and it totally is, and that's one of the most beautiful parts. And I, am yeah. So it's a, it's a, it's a strange, and almost I, I'm almost saddened that more people aren't more um, adventurous. Uh, I'll just right. put that as a term. I think that we get that kind of beaten out of us in in childhood. Um,
1: yeah. Well, yeah. Do you mind if I kind of run with that a little bit? Yeah, please. It's like- Please. I do I, I picked that out when I listened to your last podcast. I thought that was a really important point. I think I wrote that to you as well. That you are kind of taking a stand for this. I um, actually brought up my friend Eric Reed, who you might know. Eric. Um yeah, I was visiting with him, and we were yeah the Badger. We were talking about about this in that context too. i, I heard your podcast and. And that we, we both agreed that um, we kind of we kind of grew up together in a sport. We've met each other. I had been flying for a year. He'd been flying for six months. And he was part of that, that Motley crew. They were flying cross country under the scene around California. Just some fun contacts there. Um, but we both were talking about how we're so busy trying to justify that we're, it's just normal what we're doing. And everyone say, but you could die. Or like, oh no, it's not about that. Oh no, it's not about that. That's it's a beautiful sport. It's like it's, uh it's not about the death thing. And also then the next thing I'll be like, Oh, you're a daredevil, you like adrenaline. And I'd be like, I don't like adrenaline. I don't I personally don't like adrenaline. And I and I think you I think it is a good point to take a stamp that is like Hemiway, anyway, right? Was it like any only real sports or feel where you could actually die? And that's not a statement of machismo, and I think that's that's why I was kind of excited to talk to you about. Like, I felt like I kind of want to take a stand too. And Eric agreed at this of like, no, if you're perfectly honest with the world, like to, to have anything in life where what you do is life or death by, by choice. If you put yourself into that scenario, that does force a whole new class of lessons about like, you're not messing around. Mm. Like, Like when you're talking about, I think, I think we may have the right, we're going to use Raviki speak. Like it's like parasitic processing will set up in your mind. If you let those, that negative tiger country go in and you know, a parasitic process is going to take you off your game and that's how you're going to end up in tiger country. So unless you know, you have that kind of control where you're going to say absolutely not and shut it down. That's what I mean. Like you're going to shut down the process. It's not even going to be there in the background. It's like shut down. If you can't confidently shut those things down, you know, you're not going to have the headspace. So you are going to die, right? You're going to die if you don't learn how to do the, like you, you have to check with yourself, like do this or you're going to die. So just know that like you're constantly challenged to be really honest with yourself about what's going on, you know, cause it's, it's where your whole state is life or death. Like, you know, your emotions are life or death. Like how you handle them is life or death. Like it gets, the more you start to see that mapping, um, yeah, it forces the issue but it also forces I think the the idea of um it gives you that growing up thing of like well I don't want to say like I don't nothing like a a specific kind of growing up which I remember experiencing um I was doing South African adventure travel paragliding whatever and um being in South Africa alone as a female is already adventure someone left because we hitchhike home everywhere and there's like I'm in the middle of, you know nowhere hitchhiking and And back then it wasn't, the cell phones were just like, I just had them for emergency. It wasn't like I could just be like Instagramming everything or recording people's in the nineties. And I just thought, you know, I'm the only one who's looking out for me here and I'm glad it's me. Like I trust myself to look out for me because all the things I felt like I successfully pulled off in the air. And that felt like, again, it's not every way growing up, but it was, I just really appreciated that self-confidence, like that. I had found a way to develop that love of my own ego's ability to look out for this body or whatever, however you want to say it, like that. I, that I had really said, Hey, I, I I'm pretty good at this. Like I figure things out. I can count on myself to figure things out and to know that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's um, simplicity on the far side of a deep complexity that is hard to describe how one can go through, but I want to back up for a second to this, this, you know what you and your friend eric had talked about that you wanted to take a stand for the adventurous a stand for the risk takers and you know the hemingway quote that it's not a real sport unless you can actually die doing it there's something to be said about that and the thing that it brings up for me is you know i i've been saying lately that base jumping is a death practice mostly because you have to deal with everyone else's fear of your death when you tell them you're base jumping and that's true
1: um my mom actually said to me when i said i want to try to get what the sport said i first she said i don't know how you can live without it and then she said i've already come to terms with the fact that you would die doing this yeah so she was kind of giving my blessing to keep going hard you know but i was i was feeling like i had some moral judgment on myself that i shouldn't live for this sport that i should that you know and and i had ideas for other things i wanted to do but it was a hard it's been and continues to be a hard decision for me to have a relationship to this Yeah, yeah i i
0: and i think that that sensitivity is really important for you to be able to to discern that and um you know this you know, some part of my participation in paragliding was I wouldn't say conditioned, but it was there was so much inertia in my life that brought me to paragliding. You know, I had already done, you know, double backflips off of a hundred foot ski jump. And so the idea of doing something really dangerous that could like break me was like, yeah, right. Duh. And so but and skiing, you can die skiing for sure. But it's just so much more rare. Uh, paragliding is a more fatal sport. Um, lots of people break their legs and their backs, but you know, the fatality aspect that there's a lot of different configurations that the sport can wind up in that it's just like kind of lights out situation. And the same thing with base jumping, you know, it's like, um, and I don't think I understood that wholly until I was the first responder to a gruesome fatality here at Pine Mountain. And I basically, Mm -hmm watched a guy make an egregious rigging error and he wasn't even connected to a pair to the paraglider in any hard way he was holding onto it with his hands mm-hmm. and he basically launched off the hill and got probably 70 feet off the ground and just fell from ah. 70 feet and you know in some way it didn't scare me more about paragliding because i was like that guy wasn't fucking paragliding like he was not paragliding. Right, just... he was t- he was totally blowing it like that was just such a egregious error that can be written off to egregious errors. Um Sorry. Yeah. If you don't connect yourself to the paraglider and you inflate the glider in really strong wind, only holding onto it with your hands is just like a series of just completely things that I have never done. Not once in my 2,500 flight hours of right. paragliding. So it was easy right. for me to say, okay, that's doesn't scare me about paragliding, but the fact that my physical body will end was a, that was a, that was a moment that, oh, wow. Like, oh no, they, the rocks are hard and the bodies are real soft and they come apart pretty readily. That gave me a new perspective and it kind of slowed down my paragliding for some time. You know, it was only like four weeks after that, that my best friend crashed on top of a mountain at sunset. And I ended up, you know, he broke his foot and his ankle and his MCL and his wrist. And I basically carried him down on my back for like four hours as our girlfriends Mm. carried the gliders and, and supported me and you know trekking right. poles and and headlamps and and a sore back and yeah looking back it was one of the better experiences of my life you know like the, the times that you have such a clearly defined mission purpose and your body right. just taps into this this deep wellspring of just endless energy and strength it just yeah. like, comes from yeah. a place that you wish you could tap into that if someone wasn't like mm-hmm. at risk of dying, but that's just like the earth has that shit reserved for times of real human need. Um,
1: yeah.
0: Uh, that's some, uh, that's a bit of a tangent, but. um.
1: Well, let me, my, let my me point, see. If I,
0: yeah. My, my point here, if as I spiral around it is <clears throat> there's something radically transformational about the power of our own death. And I'm beginning to see it a bit differently lately. I think that in the past, my death is some acute future event, but my life doesn't have that quality. My life has this emergent unfolding quality and i'm beginning to realize that so does my death my death is everything that has gone like it's all back there in the dark and there's an emergence and a an effervescent emergent unfolding to my death and i'm realizing that in a really visceral way lately because i have a soon-to-be 11 year old great dane and she's limping and she's having a hard time getting around and the th- really hard logistical reality that I have the vet's phone number in my phone who does in-home euthanasia is like just such a stark look at that Future event reality that it makes me realize that the grief of losing my dog is simultaneously grieving for the past or grieving for the end of something, but it's also a repatterning my consciousness to the reality that the death was always there and always undergoing. Yeah. Because I think that when this truth hits me, it is not like a tragedy that has just occurred or is about to occur. It feels to me like, holy shit, I've been so wrong for so long and i have been out of alignment with reality for so long and the weight of the realignment is bearing down
1: on me mm-hmm. yeah i think i think a couple things i want to pick out here is um not pick out um <laughs> that sounds so critical pick up i guess um The the paragliding only has like, you know, all the extreme sports that generally minus maybe base jumping and mountaineering, like rough, rough cut here are only about 10% more dangerous than driving. Um, And so I have like kind of persuaded myself, sorry, 10 times more dangerous than driving. So one in a thousand on average for the extreme sports, be it horseback riding, diving, motorcycles, paragliding, hang gliding, sailplanes, they all hover around one in a thousand. And then with driving, we hover about one in 10,000. I think you pointed this out too, is like, we have a pretty high death rate with driving around <laughs> and, and other things. And I've often argued and, and, and was a, kind of a proponent for known for kind of coaching this idea of like, hey, you could probably knock an order of magnitude, you probably be 10 times safer in paragliding if you just drop the glider grade one and don't scratch. Like there's two things you could do and don't fly in high shear days, three things. If you do those three things, you might be able to say it's the same danger zone as driving. So now I'm participating in sports, that has the same, I I felt like, you know, odds of dying as um, driving. And yet our community knows that you can bring that one in 10,000 down so quickly by your own decisions to be almost like definitely dying. I mean, there's conditions where you launch, you die. Like, you know, it's like wrong decision, die. So it's like, it's like, so it's almost like the stats is the wrong way to think about it. It's almost like do a sport where, you know, your life or death is up to your psyche. It doesn't mean it's macho. Like you're going to die. That's what maybe that's the That's like an insight. I just how I want to push back on. It's like, I'm not an adrenaline junkie, but I love the fact that like, there's so much to learn from the sport, knowing my decisions matter and my perceptions matter. And my, me getting it, me being completely in touch with the reality is matters. And, and I often talk about, I think this is another thing that I feel like is invaluable lesson from flying is that we're trying to predict the invisible sky, and when you're on launch, you have like the whole desire framework starts up, the whole like projecting thing starts up and you can fantasize what you think the day is going to be like. And I've been in so many ass kicking situations where as soon as I launch, I'm like, oh my God, well, this is not what you thought this was like yeah. until I finally could learn how to be like, I had to learn this other, this skill of deep, deep listening, which I kind of talked about, I, I, I pointed out in the talk of like, I had to have this like humble place of listening to the sky that was like a relational thing that wasn't an analytic thing to get out of the fantasy thing so like i had to like learn the cognitive skills of knowing fantasy from intuition like how do they feel different what how do you fire them up different what are they you know what are the what are the steps to get in one or the other and then like that was such an important decision to make and so like, say like, you're going to live or die by whether or not right now you think you're in a fantasy or reality, or like, is this intuition or fantasy? Like to know you're going to be working on those muscles, you like in, in a sport that says you die by your decisions, you don't die by someone else's decisions, you don't die by um, random acts of nature, you're going to die by your own ability to like, handle it. And maybe that's, yeah, I think that's bringing me back to like, mm. what I've so much loved about the sport is that when I look at all my decisions in the sport. I can see not only the live die, but I also can see the kind of coming back to the first topic we've got off of, like, how did I not open to the day? How did I keep this closed kind of fear stance? How come I yeah. couldn't just, how come someone, I remember this one day in England, we're all sitting on the hill, it's a crappy day. Um, and we're all chit chatting and like, there's a tiny window, only one person launched in this window, Graham Steele, might as well name names to kind of, (laughs) you know, Graham Steele. He's the only one that launched. Well, okay. We all launched went right down this 200 foot hill. He waited, he launched and he flew cross country like 40 miles that day. And I watched like one person nail it, like him going, I see it and go. And we all go down. It's like, wow. Like there's magic. There's magic everywhere. Can you see it or not? I think Mm -hmm. that's some of the alluring part of this sport is that we get that direct sense of like, there could be magic here. I'm not seeing. And I think that's coming back to your first topic of like, you get this, like you resent the habituation that you get with a site. Like my home sites, I, I, I kind of resent them in this like annoying way where I feel like this is the last place I'm going to see the magic. I got layers and layers of history and Mm -hmm. patterning and cultural things, and I'm not going to see it. And then I go fly someone else's site as a, that maybe has a small culture. Like if you go to kind of like lower grade sites or just local regional sites, they don't get a lot of foreign pilots and, and they're all just like, Oh my God, what'd you just do? And you, you just unlock all this stuff. Like we don't normally fly there. Like we don't, we would never go there. Like why? Well, this one time, like you said, you know,
0: yeah. and you don't know
1: that. So you're just like, here, I see the pattern. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. it's
0: best to not talk to anyone before you yeah. make an assessment yeah. of a site or a day. Sometimes. I usually
1: ask them only for beta on like rules, laws, danger, and tell him I've got the meteorology part kind of covered as a cross-country pilot. Yeah. Like I'll, I'll make yeah. the the other decisions. Okay, yeah, so just let me, give me the this, beta. The,
0: let yeah. me run this back to you. There's a really deep and profound meaning and um, empowerment in knowing that your decisions matter. Right. The, you know, lately in society we're seeing you know like to take sam harris's free will to 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 start undermining the idea of free will and try to break that down is like that's uh problematic uh, it's a fun intellectual conversation and i actually really enjoyed the book and the the argument but as a metaphysical tenant of my existence it's garbage um, mm-hmm. The, it's irrelevant. Yeah. Yeah. The the feeling that I get with paragliding right now is incredibly beautiful. I feel masterful, and I have put so much time and so much effort, and I have taken so much risk, and I have learned so much shit, and I'm so fucking good at paragliding. And the days where it works, and you know, I did two three hundred kilometer cross countries this year in Oregon, and the days where it works, it doesn't uh, feel like I'm flexing anything. It's a feeling of oneness. It's a feeling where it's just mm. the 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 thing works. It just works. Like it's not yeah. me doing it. It's just this is the way it works. And if you let the th- machine do its thing, then it works. You just get to ride the paraglider from oregon to california from oregon to idaho it's the most incredible thing um and and i love that and there's another thing i heard you say which was essentially that there's deep meaning and agency in the idea that you will live or die by your decisions i agree and but i want to there's a caveat here that i think is a blind spot of the paragliding community at large it's the idea that you can make paragliding safe and you can't make paragliding safe and that's a futile it's it's not a it's not a futile thing to want to be as safe as you can be but it's a futile thing to try to make paragliding safe, just as the same way that, you know, Jordan Peterson rants about trying to make life safe. Right. You don't, you can't sterilize life. And so here's, here's my, my point here is that there is deep power and empowerment in realizing that your decisions matter. And that will take you only so far Because at some point, you have to. There's actually a deeper arena where you get to wrestle with the reality that your mastery won't keep you from dying. Because Mm -hmm. paragliding masters have died before you, and paragliding masters will die. The chance that I die paragliding is very real. It's very real. And if I die paragliding, it doesn't mean that I'm not really good at it or that I wasn't on yeah. my A game that day. All kinds of shit that has never happened happens. Things that have never happened happen all the time. Um that is to say, he had, he had, I, I guess what I'm uh, what I'm, my, my point here, I'll get there. <laughs> my my point is that there's a deep arena where we have to wrestle with the idea that. On one hand, our decisions matter, their life or death, and also we can't control it. It's almost like, as I hear myself saying it, it's almost like that keeping free will and and uh, determinism intention. It's almost like not throwing yeah. the baby out with the bathwater on either of those. You're like, okay, like, no, 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 you have free will. And also, like, you're gonna die one way or the other. And if you're paragliding, you can only make paragliding as safe as you can.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I think, yeah, to kind of roll back my not roll back, but to go back to the point where I saying, hey, here's three things you can do to make it 10, ten times safer. Mm-hmm. I think it's important to say, yeah, here's not here three things you can do to make it safe. It's yeah. saying, here's how to here's how to get all those people off your back to say you're into death sports. And you're saying, well, actually I made these three choices and my odds are the same as you dying in a car the difference is like, it's all on, on this, like, it's not on the car and it's not on the roads and the rules. And, you know, it's, it's up to me, but that doesn't mean I get to stop being a hundred percent. Like with those three rules, I might still pick really hard conditions to fly in. And like, I have, like, even when I, when I started listening deeply to the air and being really concerned about, so what happened is that, um, I was really analytic about my flying I ended up in like really extreme conditions. I was just fantasizing, or I don't know what was going on, but I just, I was called the jinx in a lot of clubs. They wouldn't want me showing up because like I would just think it was good to be the first to be out there, and then the skies would turn black, and some you know I'd be blowing, being blown back behind something. It's always like I'd just be Calamity Jane, it seemed like, and I was like, what is going on? I ended up in like more stories of almost dying. Um, and I really had to get to this listening mode. And you people might think that when I got into this deep listening, it meant that I was gonna stop flying in a lot of dangerous conditions. But no, when I went to the deep listening, it was just different conditions. So like I ended up in Mexico one day and, and out of a hundred competition pilots, like in in uh Valle de Bravo, they're like, I got the yes, it's gonna be fine. And I was the only one who would fly in these conditions. <laughs> it's like I'm getting a yes, and so I'm gonna go enjoy myself, you know, and I was fine, you know, and, and other days i would ever want to fly and I won't fly. Um, that's just what I listen to, you know. It's like my that, and it doesn't necessarily fit in a package, like you said. It's not about putting it in a container. These things don't fit in a container. That's if you put them in a container, you kill them. Like it's life. It's yeah. it's supposed to be it's an openness of you, and it's about that connection. And like, and that's even what the listening's about. It's like what I heard you say. It's just you're signing up for this deep intimacy, this like love affair with the air that is so emotionally rich in every way imaginable like it's just about how clean is that and clear and deep is that relationship and that's um like it doesn't the box would kill everything that makes that so special like you, mm-hmm. so you almost set up the rules like you said you, you set up the rules and you set up the relationship and then you go for the ride neither one are happening anymore like i i have a rule that's as close as i'm going to get to the terrain i have to think about like that's done back in the experience so like i already chose my glider that part's done you know, Oh, I checked the weather forecast too much. high winds aloft. I'm out today. I'm going to go do something else and I consider it. So, but once I'm in it, nothing that's not happening anymore. Now it's just all really hundred percent relational, hundred percent being with what's going on as deeply yeah. as you can, you know? Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I think I'm kind of honing in on it here because I heard you say that you didn't want to die for some sport and how does that, Kind of figure. I feel like a really integrated way to paraglide is to acknowledge that no matter how hard you try to manage your risks, that there's an X factor in all of these sports. And there's also just like the reality that you are a temporal, fleshy character in a geological landscape and on a timeline that you can see that yeah. is going to last longer than than your frail body so there well, is it, I,
1: it, it, yeah
0: there is some kind of like moment where you have to decide like is this worth dying for and if you right. haven't considered that then maybe there's some kind of bypass going on
1: Yeah, well, so this is, um, this is the thing I didn't have time to really go into. And I was talking about that yell and what that meant. It's kind of in that little walkthrough, I do of what happened in my brain. (laughs) But at the time, I really had, um, I had just come back from um, British nationals. And I was, and that was the first kind of official comp I, I, um, I did, like, I kind of hit, hit the ground running on that. And um, I did really well. And I had the the British training team kind of pull me aside and said, I had all this raw talent, and I should really get into it i was like and i just switched that point i was like oh i'm gonna be this if you have the potential to be like a world champion if you really want it like you have so much raw talent not a woman's but like a the first maybe female in the sport and i just went to my head and i was just like i just became like this kind of driven athlete mindset and everything up to that was just this love and i think at that point uh you know i mean it's like kind of like sometimes life is like you couldn't write it's so cheesy you almost couldn't put it into a movie like I was demoing a glider that I didn't like, but I thought could win, you know? And I, I knew I didn't like the glider, but it was like a sponsorship thing. And like this thing could probably get me to win. It was placing well, or I knew I didn't like the manufacturer. Everything was like no heart. Right. And then I was flying with my friends and I wasn't getting a feel of the glider and they're pulling ahead and I wasn't able to keep up and I was pissed off. And I just went to dive for lead side thermal. I knew it was dangerous. just like I was, Everything about my relationship to the wind was exploitive, bratty, entitled, you know, it was exploitive. And, um, and you know, I guess since we're on this kind of metaphysical thing, I'll share something I didn't bring up in the Stoa talk. So I I kept that mindset after deployment. That was why I didn't want to die for that sport was speaking to like, I saw, I didn't want this goal, like of being a world champion. Wasn't what I was going to die for like that, that whole crustiness thing. I'm not going to die for that, but I felt a blaspheming to reduce paragliding to a sport. Like yeah. to, I, I knew I was calling it a name and tearing it down. Everything mm-hmm. meaningful about it as a way to build myself up to do this thing. And I, it, it felt bad. Um, so like the whole thing was, was bad, but then I still was like, no, I'm going to be a competition pilot. Like it didn't get in deep enough. Like I'm still just gonna I'm not going to let this get to me. I keep training. I'm not going to, didn't change me like that. night, I was not flying the same site, actually an Eric's glider. And like, I felt like the gods were just screaming at me. I decided I'm going to get back on the horse right away. I'm not going to let this near deployment ruin my game. So we went for evening flight in his glider. He's smaller to me. The harness, I couldn't get to unlock. I literally could not reach the reserve on his harness. Um, and I flew over the same spot. Like you just decided to get back on the horse so blind. You're on a glider you don't trust. The same spot that almost killed you. On a glider where now you can't pull the reserve because you're so hung up on this like macho, like I'm not going to let the fear get to me. I'm going to power through the fear. Yeah. And, um, and so it was like, three years later is actually after the really bad world air games. I was so PTSD from, you know, from the world air games. I mentioned earlier before we got on the calls a notoriously dangerous comp that really kind of woke everybody up, but I'd flown for for the U S team on that comp. And I was decompressing at this really mellow site, Pedro Hita central Spain on evening flight. I launched this evening flight and, um, and there's a cloud on the horizon, a cumulus nimbus cloud, which had been there all day, which would normally be like a warning sign, but I was like, we all were just like, whatever. And it was seven o'clock that thing's not doing anything. We launched and a 50 mile an hour gust front came through. And there I was again, just like fighting for my life. And I was just so angry. I just was like, this time I'm yelling, I'm not dying. Like I am not, I am not like, I'm so angry that this is happening again. I'm here to just chill. I cannot chill this sport. And, uh, anyway, I, I had to just battle my way through that one, I, making up a little maneuver. I was flying this ozone, um, uh, Uh, what what people like that were using as an acro glider back then uh, um the ozone was like a really tight little glider and i knew i could pull like a 70 80 percent collapse and still steer so when i was like getting blown back you know and then i basically set up over this tiny group of trees is the only ones that weren't popping like well you have to hit the target and so like i just pulled this like cherry drop and i want to land face first i don't like bleed out you know if i break my neck and so like i'm like okay 80 percent collapse is going to dive you right into the canopy I should settle in just fine, just high enough to be able to pull my glider out. I mean, it become like so, like calm. is like here's how you're gonna survive this one, da, da, da. you know. And, and so I did it, executed, it, got the glider out, and I was just like, what the fuck, you know, like why does this keep happening to me? And then I got back to the hospital where I was staying, and the person I was staying with, Peter Brinkaby actually, uh, was had Carlos Castaneda on the nightstand, and I had read a ton of Castaneda as a teenager. And now I'm like 10 years later, I saw the book, and it was just like, I just was like. Oh, I know how this story goes.
0: Yeah.
1: I picked up the book, flipped it open, pointed my finger and said, using the wind as your ally. <laughs> you <know? laughs> like, and I was like, what the fuck did you do with your relationship to the wind? Yeah. You're exploitive, bratty, da da da. You're just, mm. what, what did you do? And then I went into this like, kind of like religious repentance thing where I was like, just listening. I said, what do I need to fix this relationship? Like, just like you do the person, like, I know I was wrong. What do I need to do? And next morning, the wind started talking to me He said, okay, for starters, hitchhike or you're, you're not getting a ride up to launch, pager your heats, so you're going to walk the six miles, 3,000 foot with your glider on your back. If someone stops to offer, you aren't hitchhiking, you're walking. If someone offers you a ride, you can take it. Otherwise you're walking and just think about your relationship the whole way. It's just like, okay, man. And I got like a mile or two down the road and someone said, Do you need a ride? I'm like, okay, I got on launch and like, what now? And the wind said, no instruments no instruments on this task. Everything's off, no electronics. Okay. And I ended up flying this beautiful cross country, just silent. I realized that I had like gotten in the way of my relationship, just like obsessing. It was like non-digital. I had to like go back to my old way of sighting to see if I was climbing and just completely in touch with my senses and finished like a nice little task and made it to goal. And and it was just kept going, now what? And I just started listening. And that's what started that deeper listening. And that's what I've been doing ever since. Like, check your relationship with this thing. And I don't know if I got back into competition, like, you know, how that police it. So I'd be curious to hear if you've played with that landscape. But it's like, I've really been protective about that. Like, this thing is offered to teach you really important things about your life. Like, you have to be really respectful of this relationship. And coming back to your one point, it's like, if I'm, I... I, I now kind of fly like, is it worth dying today for this flight? And if it's not, I can do something else. And I never know if the day is worth it. And there are days when I say, I would die for this flight today. And it's like, just remember that, like, because that might be what happens. Like, So I try to bring it back to like, that seems like the most honest thing of like, I would die for this experience. I want this memory. I feel I want this today. It's okay. And then other days, like, would you feel you know, um, resentful if you died for this flight. I'm like, yeah, I would resent my giving up my life for this flight. And I just don't fly on those days. Um,
0: but yeah, I'm
1: I'm curious if you have anything like that in your landscape. mm. Well,
0: I just, the thing that I love the most about what you shared is, you know, a term that Peter Lindbergh brought into my awareness, which is just being in right relationship with blank. And the difference between dying for a sport and just dying can be the difference between being in right relationship with something or being out of that right relationship. Um, It makes me think of this part of the Michael Pollan's book, uh, How to Change Your Mind. He's basically like interviewing these different potential um, mushroom guides. And he gets onto the subject with this one guy of what would you do if the horrible tragedy of one of your clients dying during a ceremony would be? And he nonchalantly says, well, you would bury them with all the other dead people.
1: Mm.
0: And there's a certain wisdom, there's a certain wisdom in that, which is that we seem to be putting, recreation deaths aside from death which Mm -hmm. I think might be a bit of a dehumanization of people who die Mm -hmm. recreating and I wince a little bit using recreation because there is a deep spiritual potential to something that is as complex as And inherently, you know, oneness, like of being in right relationship with the wind that it carries you hundreds of miles in a day. Mm -hmm. That is right fucking relationship. Like, when I landed in California, I was like, I just did a whole day of right fucking relationship with my decisions, my glider, the air, the whole thing. I was like, and i yeah. still there was still part of me that was like god i could have gone farther i could have gone farther oh i totally i spent too much time there and i should have gone faster there right and, and so i i think that the the concept of of your willingness to die for something being directly related to like are you in right relationship with this thing because if you're in right yeah. relationship with your life and your mortality then you know fuck you could die driving, you could die in your bathtub. And the comparison of statistical probability is seemingly a bad faith yeah. projection of the fear of death. It's it is non-sequitur. Right. It's not I guess it's not quite non-sequitur, it because there is such deep there's such rich Transformation and growth to be gleaned from sports and activities that have the potential to bring you enormous pain. I presented yeah. at the Stoa yesterday with the message essentially being that your intimate relationships can bring you a bunch of pleasure, but the pleasure won't make you grow. It's the pain that will make you grow, it's the pain right. that will show you yourself. And if you're If you cover yourself up to the pain of your relationships, then you won't grow. And the relationships where you start looking wide-eyed at the potential pain and stop blaming everyone for your experience, you're going to grow a lot more and you're going to start being in right relationship to your mortality, the, the negative aspects of your emotion, the fact that death owns every second that's passed. So- and and there is, you know, we keep circle back circling back to it. It's like there's a part of this. There's almost two different things here. We are talking mm-hmm. about our own justifications internally of like what is worth my risk? Risk right. and reward. What would I be resentful for if I died? Mm-hmm. Why am I doing what I'm doing? I've talked about this a ton on my on my YouTube channel about paragliding specifically. The most important thing is that you're taking the level of risk that you think you're taking and that you want to take and that you're not being pride in like, you're not being drawn into that by your pride, by your ego, by your need for connection or your need for mastery or need to be seen or any of these various potentially egoic things that are vying for our attention. And, and, for the executive function of our physical form constantly, so there's there's one element of that. Um, what is can what I is can I add risk? one little
1: point onto that that I think is really interesting? Um, sure, the, sure. That the the I was on a training hill in Santa Barbara at a lunch break. I was flat and and I had to be back for a meeting. Um, and sorry, I think I'd hiked up, and I had never had a situation where I thought. Um, you know, where I decided to fly, because it's just a training hill, like you just you really could just fly for a few minutes to go down. Um, The conditions weren't great. And I was gonna be late for the meeting. And I thought, well, just fly down. So you won't be late for your meeting. I was like, Oh, my God. How did that get in there? Like, I was gonna risk my life to not be late for a meeting. Is that that's the like, I'm like, my love of my mother. And like, I'm like, all this deep probing. And it's like, you almost threw the whole thing out, because you're gonna be late for a meeting. Like, how, how does that work? You know, like, Like, yeah, like what, what just happened to my decision-making there? Yeah. So the
0: internal like risk and reward thing is a big part of it, but we're also, we're also talking about the external justification towards other people. And I made the joke earlier that base jumping is a death sport, but mainly because you have to deal with everyone else's projections of their fear of death whether it's their fear of your death or their fear of their own death, or they call you crazy or they think you're insane or any number of these things. There's a, there's an, a, there's an external, there's an outward facing part of our death practice with these sports because we're bumping into other people's fear and we're having to engage right. with it constantly, I would say. And, Is a fractal that I think is best held in tension that, no, I'm going to do the thing that I'm going to do, you know, the, and I also am trying to keep it together, but there's, you know, I've noticed so many different motivations in me. I've, I've said many times I've paraglided for every single reason I've paraglided Mm -hmm. for my spirit. I've paraglided for my ego. I've paraglided in grief. I have, you know, like I've done all of that. Um, and I find that in base jumping lately, base jumping really the part of me that comes online a lot is a very rebellious, fuck you. I'm going to do what I want to do energy, Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? There
0: is like this, like death is everywhere. you look over the edge of the cliff and you're like, yep, yep. It's like, you know, it's not even that far down. You know, paragliding, we get so skied out. It's like, oh, the ground is like this abstraction. But no, in base jumping, usually it's like, no, the rocks are there. You can see them. Yeah. Um. And so it's pretty visceral, like the risk. And then you just, there's kind of, there's some, at least in where I am right now, there is some kind of rebellious, I'm going to do what I want to do energy. Um
1: the love of it right i mean you must love it must be pulling right
0: i mean just the just the and you know the the uh, you know you've you've said a couple of times almost like in a resentful way that people told you you're an adrenaline junkie
1: yeah
0: and i think that from a neurological standpoint it's somewhat it's true essentially that we're, we're getting like some kind of reward chemicals for these things but adrenaline and yeah, not people's adrenaline. people's experience of adrenaline is kind of a misnomer for what we're doing. Yeah. Uh, base jumping is kind of exactly it though. It's like, there is like a rush and there is, right. there is a, you know, this crazy acceleration, this, it's such a beautiful, it's such a beautiful thing. Um, and there's so much yeah, you forethought, get- you know, you like pack your parachute into there, like your life depends on it because it does. And so it's like, there's a right. deep, there's like kind of a ritualistic yeah. presentation to your life and your sport and your risk. And, and I don't know. It's so, it's so beautiful. And it, it is really an arena that I've just gleaned so many different insights. And mm-hmm. it's an arena that is, as Verveki said, reciprocally opening where I, bring my existential inquiry, like the meaning of my life, the purpose of my life, my relationships, I literally bring that to paragliding. Like paragliding processes my relationships. And also my opening in my relationships processes and encourages my growth in paragliding. It's like a reciprocal Mm -hmm. opening. And I think that this concept is something that, People should seek out more consciously. What are the things in my life that are reciprocally opening other domains or other dimensions of my existence? You know, like you started this conversation with, how how else was I closed to the sky today? How else was I veiled with my conditioning and my lenses that I was putting on the sky? How else was I missing out what else could i open to right
1: yeah and i think that that is a lot of when i said are uh, are you willing to die for the day um I, I think it's easy to think about that as being a kind of oh if it's an extreme day that's a hard decision than a simple day but it's not and i think that's the thing that we know is that you're just as likely to die at the training hell as you are in the most extreme situation if you aren't if you make the wrong decision, it's that easy. You know, it's like, your head has to be in it. And so I ask myself, regardless, if it's just a little coastal flight or if it's like a real flight, like, cause it happens, people die on, on all the conditions. Um, and when I ask it, I think to your point, um, what does it bring in to ask that question? Like, like, are you willing to die for the day? Often what it invites in for me is like, what is this, what is this potentially going to show me? about life today if i am open to that like like i'll come up with maybe an exercise or a goal for the day that i feel like will be working on the thing i know and i feel myself i want to work on that that, that the day will show me and there's something about that too like i think you're pointing out like if you're like life wants to grow life wants life moves and it, and it, it, it just it's just blossoming it blossoms we don't like boredom we don't like repetition like it's just blossom and blossom and you know and it's not about novelties like the dark side of it but the growth is the like the light side of it right it's not about novelties it's about like that what do we really feel like ah going to be even more open to life going to like really get at mm. like at those layers at those blocks at that at that veil we're going to be able to reveal something move something aside through the sport that's what i'm kind of looking for is that 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 sense of it and i think that i don't know in a very hand-wavy way it does seem like this beautiful coupling of life and death like that's what your life is for So that's what she should be willing to die for. And if you're just not, if you're just going to have a dumb flight, you know, if you're going to be paragliding bored because you've done this thing a million times, like I'm like, no, I'm not going to. I'm going to bring something to this. Either the sky is going to bring me something, or I'm going to bring something to this that is going to be open me up in some new way about everything. Like it's it has that power always, you know, because you're going to be right up against your character when every when your decisions matter. Like you know it. You I know all my character flaws and I see where my everything that gets in the way you know if it's often I call it character like I I feel my character flaws when I fly like they're obvious envy is obvious Um, lack of courage is obvious like all my lack of trust like all these things that we almost call character flaws I see myself bring to the landscape as they'll show up as shortcomings They'll, they'll be they'll pull me away they'll be obvious ways that like that, that I would do better if I didn't have them, you know, like they, they're right there waiting for you. You know, you could just feel them and and play with them in that, in that arena, as you put it.
0: Yeah. I've really enjoyed this conversation. And if I can, as a way of summarizing and closing, just I would like to pontificate momentarily, which comes from pontiff, which is the Pope, (laughs) just hand down some Pope-like Condescension. My intuition here is that what I'm pointing at is that there is so much to be learned by being in right relationship with your life and your purpose and your risk and your agency. And I think that the thing that we might be missing societally and individually is that it's very difficult to be in right relationship with your life. If you're not in right relationship with your death, because the things are just the more that I live, I just think that they're inextricably bound in a way that is obvious and subtle and not obvious simultaneously And the connection between life and death is, is it's, it creeps in on me. And there's other times where it just squishes me like a rock. You know, I had a scare two weeks ago that the the dog didn't eat for 24 hours and she hadn't moved in five. And I was just like, oh my God, this is it. And then two days later, she seems okay. And I'm like, holy shit. Okay. No, it's realer. Like it crushed me there, and like now I have a little bit of space from it, and it's like dripping in, and so I'm like, okay, there's some kind of right relationship that needs to be formed here, and and I'm yeah. I'm desperately I don't even I don't maybe not desperately anymore, but I'm I'm doing my best to feel into that, and um, I'm grateful for my experiences paragliding and base jumping and doing all of these extreme sports and all of these particularly stunts. You know, like base jumping is essentially a stunt. A cross-country nine hour cross-country paragliding flight is not a stunt by any means. Yeah. <laughs> but a base jump yeah. is a stunt. And so and and yeah. doing stunts, you kind of have, you know, it's it's so it's so short that you have time before and time after to kind of realize yeah. what the fuck am I doing and why and for all these things. But
1: yeah. I, I have of... a um 16 and a half year old dog, and we're at the exact same stage i've been like i i actually had an appointment to put her down about a month ago and then that day she rallied and i it's like oh, cancel the appointment and now she's rallying again she's you know she's got a number of ailments it's, um, yeah it's confusing that I'm it's, it's confusing. very confusing and i remember there's one point where she decided at 3 a.m she wanted to go on this like adventure walk she just starts galloping wildly through the streets and i'm like oh my god and she's like and then she kind of like stumbles over herself and almost knocks herself out of the curb and i'm carrying her back limp and then she comes back to life and i'm like Okay this dog is in transit and she's saying to me her spirit is like I want out of here and oh. then I just had this feeling of like if I, if that, if I'm reading that right like her spirit is saying I I'm, I'm I got my yes I want to go and I'm yeah. I'm like yeah I'm ready to let you transition into like the great wild you know yeah um but then my called my friend who's a night owl and he's like maybe she just felt like going for a night walk and I think <laughs> he's right so I was like you know so, <laughs> but it is interesting you kind of go yeah. yeah you dip into the interpretation and I, I think and- of her, yeah, but I think there's also I heard a thing recently that some I'm going to totally butcher this, but some tribe acknowledges that people that are mourning are more connected to the spirit world, and I think it is in this stage you kind of have to go into this pop into like maybe I'm saying goodbye to my best friend. Yeah. Nope, not today. Now we're just you're just an annoying old dog. I gotta you know it's like, but that's also okay, right? Um, so I think that's right. Maybe I don't know if other people do this, maybe listening as it'd be a, a litmus, because I don't really know. I've been paragliding since I was 24 and now I'm fifty-three. So most of my life has been paragliding. Um, so I don't really I don't really know how it's changed me. But when I got her as a puppy, I, I made up a song for her I sang um, you know, that night. And I said, This will be the last song you'll hear. I'm gonna be singing this to you as I put you down. You know, like that's gonna be our life together. And so every time I sing the song, I'm contextualizing every night her life, mm-hmm. like a lullaby of yeah. this arc we have together that's going to end and so i th- that idea of like being in right relationship to death is very uh maybe that is just in my bones i didn't realize it and i don't know if people listening don't do that don't think those kind of things and they get it on maybe, <laughs> maybe that is an indicator that cargling has gotten deeper into me than i maybe realized
0: it's beautiful it's been a great conversation thank you so much yeah Okay, you guys, thanks so much for listening. If you uh, enjoyed that, please share this around. Do all the little internet things like the likeies and the subscribies and the raties and the leave a reviews on the iOS app. That's super helpful. And subscribe to my Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash in the air for as little as $5 a month. You can make a big difference in the production of this podcast. Got a little barking dogs here, which is... Time for me to sign off. I'll see you in the next episode.